Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. Today I'm chatting to Francis Judge about the different versions of the Bible that we find. My name is Nadine Judge. So here we go. Wifey asking husband a whole lot of questions. So I'm going to be asking Francis whether it matters what version of the Bible we read and why there are so many English versions. My word. So my first question to him is, why are there so many different translations? Well, the truth is that uh, until kind of the middle of the 1900s, the middle of the 20th century that is, there weren't that many options. Though the English Bible has a really long history of translation, first being translated into English, though if you try and read it, you wouldn't necessarily recognize it as English because it looks something like Chaucer by Tyndale in the 1400s. Um, it's grown progressively from that day until, like I say, the kind of mid-1900s when suddenly there was a whole slew of different English translations. And in terms of is there a good one, is there a bad one, if I answer the second first, that is, is are there any bad translations? Very, very few is the answer to that. The only one that I can think of offhand is the new English translation, which tried to incorporate as much liberal understanding of the scriptures as possible in its translation. And so it removed as much of the Jesus's miracles and the supernaturals that it, it explained them in very naturalistic language. Uh, it also explained, explained away the gifts of the spirit by using uh, the word languages instead of tongues and making it seem like these were languages that we had to go to university to learn. But uh, apart from that, almost all the English translations that are in uh, fairly wide circulation today are all good. For most English-speaking people throughout the world, the greatest problem is not finding a good English translation. It's actually reading it enough that you know and are able to have memorized just by having read bits of it or recognized just by having read bits of it. The, the Bible itself and what it actually has to say. So where did the Bible translators find the information to even start translating from? Uh, where, are, where are the sources of these translations coming from? So it's not just English that has a long history of translation. The Bible has a long history of translation. From as early as the second century, which sounds like a very long time ago, because it is, and it sounds like a very long time after the original documents were written, which it isn't. Within 50 or 60 years of the original New Testament documents being written, they were already being translated into Syriac, which is a version of Aramaic, which was the language that the Israelites spoke. It's the language that Jesus spoke at home, Aramaic, and Syriac was a version of that. And from Syriac to Armenian, by the end of the, the second century, some places that we now consider to be wholly unchristian have incredibly old uh, histories of the gospel and of translations into their language. But it was, like I say, it was with Wycliffe who desired to have a version of the Bible that the man in the street could uh, read 
that it became a major thing. And he used, the, at that time, he used the Latin, what's called the Vulgate, the Vulga, or the common language, which was no longer the common language. But when it was originally written by Jerome, it was the common language of the people. He used that as the basis to translate into English. But of course, the Bible was originally written down, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and there are portions written in Aramaic in Daniel. If you have a, uh, a Bible like an NIV that has a lot of comments and footnotes in, you will see section headers in Daniel that say the following is written in Aramaic, and there were other portions elsewhere. And then the New Testament was written down in Greek. So from uh, from later on, from about the 1500s, when the Enlightenment started and the Greek text became widely available and also the Hebrew text became widely available, then translation started happening from those original languages. So are you saying in a way that, that our translations um, come from some of the original um, documentation from the, the the apostles and and stuff like this. I mean, how 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 much can we trust all the various translations? So the first thing to say is that unfortunately we no longer have signed copies of any of the original books. I know that even today, if you are a book collector, it's a prized thing to find a first edition signed by the author. Well, such things definitely don't exist anymore for any of the books of the Bible. In fact, for any of the ancient of ancient literature. In fact, even finding anything close to an original manuscript from four to 500 years ago is basically miraculous because they just don't survive. And the more popular uh, a book is, remembering that until the printing press, which is uh, only about 500 years old, everything was copied by hand, was thumbed by hand. And if something was popular, the book physically wore out very quickly. Um, and they weren't such sophisticated books as there are now with nice hard covers and nicely bound pages. When that kind of something close to a book called a codex was first invented, they were so, pages were sewn together. So it's quite common. And we have quite a few of the Bible where the first and the last couple of pages are missing because they've literally worn off. So as we stand today, we have some very ancient uh, pieces of writing, copies, they're all copies, but we have some very ancient ones going back to the second century. So that's within uh, 50 to 100 years of the original documents being written. And those are really important because they haven't been, they aren't copies of copies of copies of copies. And they, they retain a very early version with comparatively few differences. But as we sit here today, there are almost 6,000 uh, existing copies of original documents that, that have recorded the scripture from, like I say, as early as the second century, all the way through to about the 13th and 14th centuries. So somewhere along the line, I've heard the words Dead Sea Scrolls. Is that part of what you're talking about in, in your answer that you've just given? 
It is part of the answer, but it's a very special part of the answer. Most of these 6,000 versions that we have are ver Greek versions, versions especially of the New Testament, but also of the Greek Old Testament, sometimes called the Septuagint. The Dead Sea Scrolls was incredibly important because until its discovery, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had, even copies of copies, the oldest ones we had were from 1000 AD. Yes, I said 1000 AD. So that's almost a thousand years older than the, or more recent, younger than the oldest Greek New Testament copies we had. These are called, this is called the Masoretic text. It's named after a bunch of Jewish uh, monks called the Masoretes who wrote down incredibly diligently copies of the Hebrew Old Testament. They're also the, the guys who invented the vowel system and cantillations and all, all of these other things that they, they added to the text. The Dead Sea Scrolls are important because they're dated to a between somewhere between 80 and about 30 BC. So we suddenly have a source of documents and there are several thousand documents in and amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, amongst the, I think it's up to 14 caves now that they've discovered uh, these clay jars, sealed clay jars containing old, nearly worn out copies of various texts. The whole Old Testament is, um, is attested. In other words, all of the texts of the Old Testament has one or more copies. There are something like 68 copies of Isaiah in uh, in Hebrew. There are also copies in other languages, especially including Greek. So there are several copies of the Greek Old Testament, and there are some copies of the, the, the group's um, own traditions and their own writings, which are also fascinating for understanding what was going on in Judaism at the time. And of course, modern translations make use of that as well as the Masoretic text. One of the most amazing things is how is to see how incredibly close and how few variations there are in wording between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text. Wow, I'm just thinking this is this is so amazing that there's actually so much history and 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 factual um, proof that our Bible comes down to us from a very, very long history. And it was never just somebody's good idea to put some thoughts down on a piece of paper. Mm. Well, thank you. That, that was very good. My, my other question just is, um, you know, I've, I've, I've read the message and then I've read the NIV and I've read the ESV, I've read the NLT, um, and then I've read recently the Passion Translation. What's the difference? Because, I mean, between the message even and the NIV is like a huge difference. Yeah. Um, what's the difference? Why, why, are they, why, why do they look so different? Okay, just one final piece of history because all of these different versions directly or indirectly trace their 
ancestry to the King James Bible. Well, called the King James well, Bible. Well, my, well, my That's one version I've never read. Also called the authorized version, and people think it's authorized by the king. Actually, King James um, begrudgingly authorized uh, its translation. It was authorized really by the people, how much the people loved it and read it. And just to compare or to make use of what we were just talking about in terms of sources of the original languages, when the King James was translated, it made use of five to seven Greek texts that were available to the translators, who were an absolutely astonishing bunch of people, uh, highly, highly qualified. But the source of the text that they used to translate from both the Greek and the Hebrew was severely limited by the situation they, they, they were in. Like I say, they only had access to about five to seven incomplete texts of the Greek New Testament. So partial bits of this, there were groups of Paul's writings, that there were the Gospels separately and sometimes in a group, but they only had access to this small number of texts to do comparison. And now looking back, we look and we see that they were all part of the same group of copying family. So they all had the same copying mistakes in. We now have, uh, like I say, from seven to 6,000 as a huge group. And we've discovered several other major families of uh, copying style and copying error. So the King James Bible is absolutely incredible. Obviously the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't discovered by then, so they used a copy of the Masoretic text. That was a huge leap forward in itself. It was the first widely read Bible that used the Hebrew as the basis for the Old Testament rather than the Latin. So all of our Bibles, one way or another, can be shown to have a history going back to the King James in one form or another, just as it itself had a history. So until the end of the 1800s, until the end of the 19th century, there were several revisions of the King James as new evidence came to light. But it was really with the discovery of modern archaeology about 200 years ago that all these other um, papyri and books, codices and vellums and all these other forms of uh, writing medium were discovered in all sorts of interesting places. The most amazing story I heard was of somebody in the late um, 1800s being handed in somewhere in uh, Palestine, as it was then called in Israel, um, fish and chips in, a, in an old piece of paper, which turned out to be a, a, a very ancient manuscript, which, as far as I know, still has the oil stains from the chips on it. But it forms part of this incredible corpus. I mean, this, this piece of writing that was, you know, almost 1700 years old being used to wrap up in chips. People didn't know the value of these things. So as time has gone by, the King James was updated, but it was really with the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that suddenly there was a desire for major overhaul of the King James. By that stage, the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version had already separated American English and British or Continental English 
uh, in their Bible versions. It's a fascinating study in itself to see how the King James affected the English language. But by the beginning of the 19th, the 20th century, the 1900s, American English and British English were already quite different, and they were those differences can be seen in those two translations. But with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls around that time, the American Standard 1901 and the RSV, which I think was about 1956 were ready to be revised because the English language had grown and developed considerably. And that's the major reason why new English Bible translations are given, because English is a very versatile, dynamic, living language. Uh, for those of us who are older, we can already see changes in the way English is used between when we were at school and our children or grandchildren. Are at, uh, are at school. And that is a healthy sign for a language that is being used by real living people. But it does produce uh, challenges because it makes something like the Bible, which is a well-established book, it makes it seem like it's becoming old and a fuddy-duddy book. So people are wanting to up upgrade it, update it, not change its context, but present these truths that were handed down to us in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek in ways that, that uh, make use of the way the language is used today. Okay, so then I've, I've heard the terminology, a translation and a paraphrase. So in line with what you've just told me, how does a paraphrase then happen versus a translation? Those are really important uh, terms, though the, the lines between the two are becoming more and more blurred. But let me see if I can give a bit of a, uh, a definition for the two. The, the, a translation takes a, a source language or a text in the source language, and in our case, the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, and it takes it directly from that source language and puts it into a destination language, in our case, English. So a translation takes the source languages, the language the text was originally written in, and takes it to a destination language, the language that people can understand it in, English. A paraphrase, on the other hand, usually or traditionally re-explained something that had become in the same language that had become arcane. So for instance, Pilgrim's Progress, um, a book written 400, 350 odd years ago, um, uses quite old English and there are some paraphrases of it around, but it's English to English, older English to newer English. The classic example of this in terms of the Bible is what the old living translation, uh, as opposed to the new living translation. The old living Bible was not a translation, it was a paraphrase. It took the King James Bible and it brought it into modern English. All right, so if if I had to if I had to take an example of what you were saying, it's like if I say in Afrikaans Hierdie weer is so slaaks vandag, ek verstaan nie wat eindelijk aangaan nie. A, a direct translation would be, this weather is so strange today, I don't understand what's going on. A paraphrase would just be, you don't understand what this weather's like. 
is that kind of the thing that you're saying? Okay, so you're bringing up a very important and related point. Um, so what you did was take Afrikaans and translate it into English, one of two ways, a literal way, and then what you call the paraphrased way, but I'm going to call a very dynamic kind of translation. You took the idiom in the Afrikaans, the word pictures, those things that you say that don't make good literal sense when you translate it word for word, uh, and you translated it with the sense or the, the understanding of the meaning of the thing. And this raises a, a, the key issue in terms of English Bible translations and why we have this whole scope. And the easiest way to understand them is to try and put them on a, on a ruler. At the one end of the ruler, at the one swing of the pendulum, on the one end, you have this idea of a literal translation what is sometimes called formal equivalence, the form, the literal words in the order that they're written down in, trying to represent that in the target language, in English. So that's at the one end. They've been, it's been called literal translation. At the other end, you have this very dynamic view of translation where it is a formal, a functional, as opposed to formal, a functional translation. It is a thought for thought translation, where the thought of the original uh, author is being translated in a way that the translator thinks is the best uh, English equivalent of that Greek thought. Obviously, even the New Testament, which is the most recent of the books, is 2,000 years old, and Greeks thought and probably still do in quite different ways to us, but certainly ancient Greeks definitely did. And ancient Israelites speaking in Greek uh, coming down to us, there is a huge cultural gap that translators try and bridge for us. So every English translation falls somewhere along that spectrum. Just to give you some examples, on the extreme literal end, there are there's a translation called Young's Literal Translation, which is probably the classic example of this. It is he attempted to make language like a code so that every word must be translated one way and it must be in exactly the same place and order as in the Greek text. So that's at the one end. It reads terribly. It's incredibly difficult to read because Greek word order, Hebrew word order, and English word order are all radically different. At the other end of the spectrum, we have things like the message and the passion translation, both of which were taken from the original languages. And that's why I say paraphrase has been... Um, the boundaries of paraphrase have been blurred because the they believe in such a dynamic translation that it's impossible to see any of the original Greek or Hebrew structure of the language in there. It's just the thought that has been translated or paraphrased. But both of those, the passion and the message, have been translated. They've been paraphrased from the original languages without an intermediate step in between. In the middle, you have the two classic ones are the ESV 
and the NIV. The ESV verging ever so slightly on the literal and the uh, NIV ever so slightly on the dynamic. Now, this begs the question, is it better to have a literal translation? The, 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 the phraseology sounds like, whoa, yes, literal is much better. And dynamic involves way too much of the author's own thoughts. There is a, a very famous phrase amongst translators. Uh, the translator is a traitor. And that phrase refers to the fact that it's impossible to translate anything without understanding it. And of course, the way we understand something involves interpretation. And I understand what I'm hearing through my filters, through everything that I am, my life experience. And as a result of that, I give you the best translation that I can. It's why most Bibles make use of Bible translation groups are indeed committees. It's not uh, a desire to die by committee, but to try and iron out, to homogenize, to, to make everybody's differences play off against one another and the best of their actual translation skills to come through. So that's the spectrum. For instance, the New Living then falls more on the, the NIV side, but it's definitely closer to the middle than the Old Living uh, Bible, which was a paraphrase, which is definitely off in the one direction. But it is impossible to translate without interpretation because I can't translate something I don't understand. It's something that everybody who starts to learn a language uh, comes across where they find or they hear something that they just can't understand in reading or hearing. I have to be able to understand it in order to be able to translate it. And the groups of people um, who have particular theological, they have a particular church mindset going into a translation, that mindset inevitably reflects. And group translations are generally better than individual translations for this reason, because some of, some of that weakness of individuals' preferences are, um, are kind of leveled out by the group. Uh, there are certain individual translations or translations by individuals that I love, the J.B. Phillips, for instance, but I never read it in isolation. And this is probably the biggest uh, lesson to take from this whole thing of which Bible translation is best. The answer is you need to have one of those core Bibles, ESV, NIV, somewhere around that middle of the spectrum that you read and you know well, but you should have preferably two others on your shelves or available in your library. One that represents something from the other end of the spectrum. So if you have the ESV, you should have the NIV as a backup. And a third one, a very dynamic translation, something along the lines of the message, which is very, very dynamic, masses of interpretation, and if you've read it, masses of English colloquialism. There's a reality in which the message will become redundant, will become sounding arcane within 20 years. Uh, 
But right now, it's still using a lot of contemporary English. Same is true for the Passion Translation. Something like The Voice is more to more towards uh, the middle. So you need a more dynamic translation. So whichever Bible you choose as your main reading and memorizing Bible, cool. Have another one on the other side. If if it's an NIV, then make sure you have an ESV to compare. When you read something in, in the NIV and think, oh, that's amazing, that means I can do X, Y, Z. You pick up your ESV and you read it in there. And then you grab your third Bible, your your message or your uh, New Living Translation, um, and you read what does it say in there? What does that person or what does that group of translators who felt freer to include their interpretation of that passage often very accurately? What is their perspective on it? Well, you've given me a lot of information to go and think about, but I think what I'm taking from this is that my Bible reading time can be can be far more fun, far more interesting, far more, let's say, dynamic, because you've opened the door to saying, hey, I can read more than one translation or even a, a paraphrase, as you put it, um, and, be, and be okay with that. I, it's also given me a really settled sense that this Bible has meat to it, that it hasn't just come down. It's not the latest fad. It's not the latest thing, but it's been, it's, it's, there's history to it. There's facts to it. There's, there's longevity to it and that it really is the living word of God. So Francis, thank you. Folks, if you've got more questions that you would like to ask, please email Francis at francis at venturechurch.co.za. Thank you. Trust this has helped you and have a wonderful rest of the week. Bye.